0: There are portions of most sites, even if we think we're never gonna use them again, we're just gonna throw them away in in two months after our event's over, that do ultimately end up getting reused. The headless CMS sort of revolution kind of picked up steam just about this past year. The term probably is thrown around in a lot of different ways, and I think it's probably being refined even as we speak. It's basically just content as a service. We really like work together with each and every one of our customers to make sure that the product we're delivering for everyone sort of meets these like enterprise complex workflows and use cases.
1: Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio in the house. We've got John from ContentStack. Hey, John.
0: Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Cool, yeah. So we have
1: you in the room, and uh, just curious of what you do and uh, why you're here.
0: Yeah, I'm a product manager at ContentStack. Um, we are, as, uh, as the Jamstack knows well, I'm the audience a headless CMS company. You could also think of it as API first, API only, content as a service, content infrastructure. A lot of analogies there. But yeah, basically the most well-known is headless CMS.
1: Okay, cool. And headless CMS is like a, a term that we've, we've had other individuals on the podcast talk about that as well. How long have you been using that term, headless CMS?
0: So we've been using it for probably as long as the company's been around, which is a couple of years. Okay. Um, so pretty nascent in the industry. But I actually came from a CMS background as well, worked for a company called DNN Software out of San Mateo. They were an old legacy sort of .NET monolithic uh, on-prem CMS from you know circa 15, 20 years ago, we ended up developing one of the first sort of decoupled CMSs, which is, again, a little bit different, adjacent to Headless, um, in that there was still you know, an on-prem installation, but it had sort of a RESTful API that you could access. That was about five years ago, and that's right around when you know, the Headless CMS sort of revolution began. And then it really kind of picked up steam just about this past year.
1: Yeah, and for the sake of the the listener who maybe this is their first episode, uh, headless CMS. You sort of you you mentioned the the definition, but essentially separating your CMS from your monorepo or
0: your personal repos? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it it, I think the the term probably gets thrown around in a lot of different ways. And I think it's it's probably being refined uh, even as we speak, honestly, with every new white paper that gets released from some company, they'll probably refine it even further. But uh, yeah, exactly. It's it's basically just content as a service. And so in the same way that you might you know create a form or create some sort of entry on a page within a website, that content itself has no idea where it's ultimately going to be published. It just exists as you know what we like to call structured structured data. Um, So it can be sent anywhere. It could go to a web page, could go to a mobile app, it could go to a watch or a display or an IoT device. We have no preference. And yeah, it makes it nice and flexible.
1: Yeah, so the structure of ContentStack, you, you, I assume you have a login, you establish a presence on the, the GUI, build a project, and then you have an API that talks to you like your React app or your
0: yeah, that's right. so we have this idea internally actually, and it's sort of some of our four Es. you know we have a lot of a lot of acronyms that we throw around, but one of them is equality. and so we position ourselves both as like an editor friendly and marketer friendly CMS so for business users and then also equally as well for the developer audience. So there is definitely a web application, but the apis that we have that power the sort of the underlying app are actually the same that the web app uses as well. but we're at ninety five percent of those. So in fact, there are, we have use cases and customers that actually build their own application that communicates with our APIs. So some of the editors don't even see, don't even log into ContentStack. I mean they do on behind the scenes, but like yeah, our web app is only sort of one half of, of the application itself.
1: Okay, yeah. and in our pre-show conversation, uh, we had talked about like ContentStack. You guys are focused with the enterprise world, uh, so I'm curious of like why the enterprise world. I kind of have an idea, but I'm sure to hear from you why the enterprise world and like what's the sort the difference approach to getting large. I guess essential corporations to leverage contentsec or headless CMS in general.
0: Yeah, so there's a it, it's an interesting question. There's a I was kind of thinking about what that answer would would entail, and I think honestly, it, it more comes down to like. There'd be a very long laundry list of, of reasons why we sort of chose to go enterprise as opposed to sort of SMB mid market and then kind of upstream. Whereas you know a lot of nascent technologies, especially in the in the Jamstack world, are you know kind of built for experimentation, um, you know developer ecosystem, like kind of driving this this sort of like groundswell of of sort of grassroots movements. Um, and then you sort of like refine from there and kind of move up market as the you know requirements get more complex and stricter. We and our founders and pretty much everyone in the company actually has comes from a DNA or has the DNA of like an, Enterprise, I guess, enterprise DNA in their blood is the best way to say it. So, um, we sort of know how to talk to that audience. We sort of know what they're looking for. We sort of understand what that sales cycle might entail. So, there's quite a lot of things that go into it, both from a product side, from a process side, from a customer success side, from a, a sales cycle side. Um, I would say the product is definitely one large piece of it because, you know, we are the beneficiaries of having amazing customers and at that. Sort of enterprise use case. They give us also awesome feedback, and we really see ourselves as partners uh, with them, and they conversely see themselves as partners with us. And so we really like work together with each, each and every one of our customers to really like make sure that the product we're delivering for everyone sort of meets these like enterprise scale and, the, and these needs and complex workflows and use cases. Um, and so that type of feedback it really is like self reinforcing, and it really honestly helps to drive a roadmap in a positive direction.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned the uh, content stack's only been around for a couple years, handful of years. And uh, I know, like, uh, me personally, I've been at small companies who get into the enterprise world. And there's like this push and pull between the developer and the enterprise world. And like, there's features that are needed for enterprise, but there are features that developers don't care about. But we need features that enterprise don't care about. And like, it's sort of back and forth between like the sales team and like the developers <laughs> or the engineering team or the product team. So, and you mentioned like equitable and like equality between the two products. So, like, how do you do that push and pull and how do you get that balance and how do you not make sure your your product is good for... All walks of life and developers
0: yeah it's, I think it's always a negotiation right so between you know you're negotiating with your sales team you're negotiating with the market at, at large you're negotiating with the customers with pretty much everyone internally obviously what the engineers want to build um, and of course like it you know we sort of have this equal stance between the business user and the developer user or the technical user I suppose and what it really again kind of comes down to is understanding that for that that type of use case for that type of customer you know put it on the sales set for a minute because um, obviously there's a sale involved as we're, we're a closed source product we're not open source at all so we sort of do rely on our customers to survive but it's a pretty lengthy and complex um, cycle we deal with a lot of stakeholders um, in these organizations so we really do have to like provide this solution that meets both needs of the technical folks as well as the business users and they have you know this myriad of, of unique bespoke workflows that we have to address and so it really just comes down to like kind of catering to both audiences simultaneously. I'm um, understanding that at that level, you know, there's no such thing as like a one-click integration. There's no such thing as like these sort of like simple sign-in to little plugins and widgets. Like there is a need for very, very complex, bespoke solutions to their exact use cases that we have to do our best to sort of cater and hold their hand through that seeing that solution come to fruition, but also provide the flexibility to like yeah. customize it themselves.
1: Yeah. So the you mentioned you're a PM at ContentStack. Are you the only PM? Like, are you focused on the enterprise side, and then you have another PM for the developer side? I'm it. You're it. Okay. Yeah. So you have to. So
0: I could say head of products, um, but you know it's a department of one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I, I claim that title. Yeah, exactly. uh, it's got a stake your claim. You know, I'm <laughs> a senior Beyonce advocate at uh, GitHub. So if the chance ever comes, people will notify me Beyonces at GitHub. So that's yep. sort of what I do.
0: <laughs> Need to update my LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, excellent.
0: So, uh, <laughs> curious though,
1: what's the uh, in the enterprise world like? What's the killer feature that ContentStack brings to the table that makes enterprise excited about it, and like that you're sort of winning with?
0: Yeah, I, I think you know it's a mix of both process and and product. Ultimately, you know, we have to design the product itself to like exist and flourish at that scale, right? So if it's Millions of of operations, or uh, pieces of content, or whatever it happens to be, like the scale is just much more complex, so deeper and and broader. And so, of course, supporting those types of use cases, I think, is one thing that a lot of organizations, when they're in a sort of POC phase, right, they might run into those particular limits, and they may not be called out on any marketing site. You know, you look at fifteen. CMS marketing websites—they're all going to say very similar types of features. The devil's in the details. Each one of those particular features is going to have some devil at the end of it, right? Where they're going to say, "Oh, well, you know what? Like, it looks great on paper in a three-second sort of marketing, you know, website functionality or feature by feature comparison, but in reality, when they went during testing, that's kind of where the difference is made."
1: Yeah, and I imagine like there's a lot of—I assume there's a lot of migration from like a Drupal or WordPress world. So do you get a lot of those conversations and sharing the benefits around why you would not go through some traditional CMSs that maybe they came through Web 2.0 or late 2000s, uh, maybe they were stuck on?
0: Yeah, we do, for sure. And what's interesting is during those conversations as well, like WordPresses and Drupals and traditional legacy CMSs, have created these these workflows that actually work really really well for the business user. Right. And so like a headless CMS fundamentally is no different than a traditional CMS in the way that like the application or in, in the way that the user experience sort of flows, right? They still have the need for a workflow, they still have the need for permissions and roles and all these sort of like user segmentation things, uh, especially at that sort of complex and deep level. I mean, it's really a technological update, right? And so you know there will always be incremental improvements to like the WordPress platform, but what there hadn't been was like an evolutionary Kind of step forward at a deeper technical level, um, how that content is being sort of published and interacted with and managed. And so that's really where the biggest difference comes in.
1: Curious. And so I want to zoom out a little bit on the conversation and just talk about CMSs in general and where we've come from. So I, I just spent like all morning working on an actual site uh, using Gatsby. And like the, the structure itself, it has no CMS attached to it, but it has like the equivalent, which is the JSON files. Um, that I can populate and it populates onto my my page. So it's pretty common in Gatsby the Gatsby world and uh, static site generators. So I'm curious if, if me as a developer and I'm throwing this site together as like a one off, like we're doing this one event. We want to talk about it. We want to have like a page for people to walk to, and I'm gonna like never ship code to this ever again unless like we do it again next year. Yeah. So like I should just be able to hot fix like 2019 to 2020, uh, and then we're doing event again. So I'm curious like. Should developers be looking into, and I'm talking like outside of the enterprise world, should developers really start approaching headless CMS and leveraging this? Like, when do we see? More adoption, as far as it goes, like generally.
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple questions they probably need to answer, and the first one is whether they have a need for portability. And so, you mentioned that like the CMS you were using, it does have a head, so it's not quite headless, but it has the option to like publish, you know, a, a structured JSON doc, right? Yeah. And so, if that particular document never needs to be updated at some point in the future, maybe you don't have access to that exact CMS, or if you do have access to that CMS, but you simply need to like revisit that that article and and update a few things and have both the Old website, possibly updated, and then a the new one also updated. If there's a need for portability to like make, basically make sure that there's a canonical version of that content that's always sort of up to date, no matter where it lives, that's the first question they need to answer. The second one is on um, sort of reusability. So when I mentioned when you're updating it year after year after year, possibly you're not going to want to like just... Maybe the site itself is forgotten about. Maybe there's like a full refresh and it's a totally other microsite or static site. But the content itself will most likely maybe it's maybe you're using half of it. Maybe you're using only a third of it. But you probably want to go revisit it, take some cues from what was already there, and then sort of like move forward from that point. It's oftentimes never going to be like a complete, just bottom to top do over, right? So there are portions of most sites, even if we think we're never going to use them again, we're just going to throw them away in in two months after our event's over, that do ultimately end up getting reused, whether that's like picking something off the shelf from a technological perspective or even just picking up that content again and and updating it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see like this, the hopefully people are listening, like this adopting this model of. Content management, because like I think of like event, I'm, so I'm literally hammering into this just like event idea, but like events like uh, Hacktoberfest, where everybody can get together and ship code together. But then you have like these one-off meetups, so it's either like create a, your own meetup account and then set up this meetup, or use this template to like host your own site. There was another event uh the Global Speaker CFP Day. That was another event, very similar. Everybody like forked a template and then shipped it. But it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for like if. There is a model that could be reproduced that you could sort of clone the existence of like it's your if it's your content stack or whatnot. And I'm sure like even at these enterprises, I don't know, we didn't really get into like the use cases at the enterprise level. Like, are these marketing sites? This is your full-on site. But I know for a fact like some of these agencies who are shipping brand assets are using a CMS to recreate that same sort of asset brand templates over and over again. So it seems like a lot of value for people internally to like. Have the model to be able to reproduce this thing really quickly, rather than bottom up.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you were to sort of graph out, you know, visually, like how much our projects spiderweb from sort of like a single point, and then the distance between, you know, how far those points actually reach, and then no one can, you no know, one listening can see this, but like my fingers are basically end to end right now, like fully outstretched, and then you would try to like say, okay, what are the common elements between point A and point B? There's probably a, quite a bit of reuse and portability there that simply has to be thrown away and recreated, right? And that's just it, it's actually comes down to what we're gonna talk about later with uh, with the picks. But you know, it's it's this idea of like the knowledge work that we've all sort of become accustomed to doing exists in silos, however like our brains don't exist in silos, right? Like we create a Google Doc and then we like share with people and everyone collaborates and then we say, Okay, that's great, like content's done and then we forget about it. And then a year later we're like, crap, where's that Google Doc go? Yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Searching in Google Drive is challenging on large yeah. organizations for sure. <laughs> I'm literally doing this with my team right now. Where we're um, our team really started when I joined, um, so I was like employee number one on the developer relations team, and then we grew from there at, at GitHub. So now we're setting up all these processes. So like, if we speak at an event, like. What sort of activities should we like plan to do, or in, what sort of people should we look for that engage in the community? So we have like these checklists that we're sort of like reproducing over and over again every time we need to approach an event. And I think it's like a model that we tend to do a lot. I guess it's kind of like a sales model. Um, we tend to develop relations and sales; sort of, they're kind of similar. Uh, but a lot of people don't want to men- mention that. But uh, the model is reproducible, and like we just need to have like a template, fork it work with it, and then like ship it. Mm-hmm. And like, that's the same process we've been doing where we just, we're just not sure, because everything lives in Markdown on GitHub. So we started on a Google Drive, but that's really not the best place to start because most people don't want to collaborate there. So then we go to the GitHub, but GitHub's not the best place because inline commenting on, on actual Markdown is a challenge at the moment.
0: Yeah, and so, then you're like side-by-side side with GitHub's Markdown cheat sheet. And like, how do I do a bold again?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and only certain certain elements uh, actually can actually leverage those those templates. Mainly comments are the places that you can leverage some of those like hot and the uh, the WYSIWYG. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to sort of think about in that the reproducibility and reusability uh, mm-hmm. in the context of everything that you sort of approach. I'm curious uh, going back to your, your initial introduction in the CMSs because sounds like you you've been in the CMS world for a while. And seeing like, the transition to headless CMS, are we going down, I mean, you're at a company that has a CMS, it's not the best question to ask, but like, it seems like we're going on a path where now everybody has their own decoupled version of X or Y. So now we have how do we manage like, the future world where we choose different things and then the whole Google Drive problem of trying to find out, okay, I saved this somewhere, where do I go to find this?
0: Yeah, totally. I think it. You know, you could see on on paper, and I think a lot of the CMSs that have a, a decoupled instance or version of themselves, or they sort of like maintain a monolithic CMS, and they sort of create this sort of like adjacent, you know, API that. Basically, can fetch content from in a structured way. And I say, like, okay, great, well, decoupled's best of both worlds, right? You have your head, and then you also have the ability to do all the headless stuff if you really want. But I think there's a larger conversation that's not being had that will ultimately and it's being had in some circles for sure, but it's definitely not part of like the the larger zeitgeist, right? Around sort of headless. And that's basically around sort of this this three sixty I wish I had a better way to verbalize it now, and I guess that's part of how the conversation is still evolving, but this idea behind like a, a monolithic CMS, or I guess a decoupled CMS, has the ability to publish content. There's not a lot of ability to like take what was done, sort of do a retrospective on it, and then find out if it worked or not, and then update it and move forward. And so there's this idea of like in you know marketing world where it's like, okay, we have our analytics tools, we do something, we find out if it worked, and then we try to like update what didn't work, or you know, lose the stuff that didn't work, do the stuff that did work a little bit better. That doesn't exactly exist in like the publishing world and like the content world. And so these CMSs that say, like, oh, we have an API, like, sure, just query the API and you can publish it to any view or React or Angular app you want. That's great, but it still is just like a terminal. Thing right, it, like it ends. They do it. It ends, and then there's just like now what? Where we're sort of hoping to go is this idea of more of like a like a content hub, where not only do you have the ability to publish things out, we also have the ability to like see the performance of the thing you publish, and maybe you see it in line right next to the thing you just published. Maybe you are able to pull in all sorts of other insights and data and uh, information from services that are adjacent but very related to the content you're publishing, like you know a product from SAP Hybris or. Pushing out to like your preview environments on Gatsby and sort of this entire ecosystem that's in a very meaningful way all of a sudden becoming connected, you know, ten years after Rust actually sort of hit the mainstream, but now we're sort of like see after this that de- gestation period, they're really coming to fruition.
1: Yeah. So going back to ContentStack, Stack, we didn't really talk about. Um, do you have hooks or integrations with like common CI platforms to sort of trigger builds on saves from ContentStack or anything like that? So
0: there definitely are, are ways to accomplish that for sure. Yeah. Um, and you know we have obviously your, your sort of vanilla webhooks or your, your standard webhooks that trigger on a variety of rules you can set. And we have three pretty major extensibility points both on the dashboard side on, and then two within sort of like the entry editor itself. Um, and then obviously custom fields as well. And then, of course, yeah, you can certainly like set up your sort of CI/CD workflow and, and add Content Stack as a as a portion of that workflow um, to sort of update and, and do pushes either with like a, uh, your environments or with sort of your internal GitHub processes or your build process or sort of wherever you you decide to use it in your stack.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that kind of leads me to like one of my picks. So I just want to give you a chance to if there's anything else we need to talk about. Uh, we didn't really talk, talk about scaling, uh, like working with large projects, um, enterprise. So did you want to touch on that real quick?
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, we regularly see like again going back to like enterprise scale projects where there's 60, 70, 80 different languages, for example. So you talk about like localization, and you know, we think of English, Spanish, French, German. You're yeah. like, great, that's it, did localization. However, if you think of like localization in the context of a market, right? So you have your, I don't know, you might have two dozen Spanish-speaking countries between Central and South America. You might have like a half a dozen German-speaking countries, you might have all the Nordics, and they all have their own language, but they also have an individual market. And so managing all these different variants of this masterpiece of content 60, 70 times, like that also is the type of scale that we occasionally do see, actually pretty often see. And again, just going back to like our conversation about scale and kind of tying that off, that's something that is tremendously complex and goes like way beyond most capabilities today.
1: Excellent. I'm going to transition us to Pix. Uh, feel free to still talk about and introduce your, all these. Uh constructs about CMSs in your your picks if you like. Uh, but I, I really want to talk about picks because my pick actually is some of the work I've been working on right now. So I have a talk that's going to be at Full Stack Fest so around the time that this podcast is going to come out, it, the video for the talk will come out after the podcast for sure. But my talk's actually based on CI and CD workflows in the Jamstack and all the process that I'm sort of applying that to my day-to-day work. It's coincidentally sort of planned this, but we launched a, an add-on feature to GitHub Actions, which is CI-CD. So I'll talk about that as well. But my platform for learning all this is actually, I had an idea where you have markdown files, and I would like to template those markdown files uh, essentially with variables. So if I know I'm going to have the same title going to show up uh, throughout the entire document, I, gonna, I only want to set it once, and then I want that document to then like, compile with that, I'll actually variable replace. So it's a common construct. Like Ruby tem- ERB templates do this. A lot of CMSs already do this for you. But like GitHub issues don't do this for you. So I'm basically using GitHub Actions with the uh, CI/CD uh, to do this automatically for me. So I've got this mostly working. This will be done by the time I have my talk ready. I spent like Saturday Sunday working on this, as well as like it was my I'm winning into my my second pick, which is um, so moving away from CI/CD, but I built a Ruby gem for the first time, so I've been writing Ruby for about seven years now, and I've built a Ruby gem based on like reading a book, "How to Build a Ruby Gem." Um, it's literally <laughs> it's the title of the book, it came out a while ago. And Ruby gems are basically essential like npm packages. So you just take Ruby code, package it, and just like put that on rubygems.org. And I actually had an idea to take the code I took to find the, the variables and then compile it and template it throughout the entire file, uh, I made that a Ruby gem. So it's called Marky Markdown, so check it out on Ruby gems. I've got 0.3.0 is out already because programming is hard. I made a lot of mistakes, so I'm already on version 0.3. But uh, <laughs> I'm pretty happy so far with the API. But the funny thing is like I was so heads down over the weekend and trying to figure out how to do this, actually Ruby does this by default. So the gem's actually not that necessary, which is like hindsight. But it was a fun process to learn how that process works and how to get a Ruby gem package and get people to use it as well I also want to just roll in my last pick so I'm going to Barcelona and you you'd mentioned the fact that like Spanish language like there's different markets so it's not just like Central America It's like there's a lot of different dialects um, so I'm going to Barcelona, which is uh, also another dialect between different than Castilian which is like the Spanish island in school. was it the proper Spanish but it's way different from South America so with that being said, I've been practicing Spanish, so I hopefully I don't fall flat. Uh, I won't practice now because I'm pretty <laughs> insecure about it. But um, yeah, so I've been watching Narcos Mexico. Oh, so yeah. uh, earlier episodes, uh, I had a pick, and it was Narcos. Like the, I would actually watch this on the plane, and whenever I travel, I would just watch this. Only watch this one show, thanks to Netflix's um, offline downloading, and then I would watch it with Spanish subtitles too, as well. So that way, I could sort of learn Spanish as I as I watched. Uh, Show that's being spoken in Spanish. Um, so it was challenging, but since I was in like a closed place on a plane for a certain amount of time, I could like really pay attention and listen, as opposed to being distracted at home. So
0: did you practice on the plane too? Were you just like speaking to yourself very quietly? Well, so I your seatmate's looking at you like who yeah. That? So
1: <laughs> no, I haven't really been doing that, not out loud. But actually, there was a situation when someone behind me who only spoke Spanish needed assistance in a wheelchair, and they put uh, them in the wrong seat. And the flight attendant couldn't explain that to them because the person who put them in the wrong seat already left. So they had to like, figure out, like, can, you, can you walk? Like You're in the wrong seat, you should be in this seat. And I was like, oh, what's going on? And was like, oh, okay, I kind of know Spanish, but my Spanish is really bad, so maybe I'll wait for somebody else. So anyway, I thought this would have been a, a good point to say, like, I learned Spanish and I did it and I said it, and, but I got too scared, so I just sat there. So <laughs> listener, if you are a Spanish speaker, like, flex it as much as you can, Like you know. Be confident in that. And uh, anyway, someone right after me came on. He was fluent in Spanish and like told her exactly. What he was like Caminella or whatever. Anyway, see, I'm speaking Spanish. It's really bad, so I'll just stop right there. And John, what are your picks?
0: Yeah, well, it's a it's quality language to learn. I think You're, you never go wrong learning Spanish. Um, I, you know, know a little bit enough to to get around and, oh, and we'll sort of survive out. when I'm yeah when I'm traveling in a Spanish speaking country. I don't think I'd be able to pull it up now off off the top. But it reminds me. of, just really quick, funny story. I was going to live in China for a few months during uh, during grad school to study, and I downloaded like the Rosetta Stone, and I was like, "I'm gonna learn Mandarin." On my 12 hour flight to Shanghai, and so I'm sitting on the airplane, and of course you have to like speak back into this thing for it to let you progress, and so it's telling me you know, all, all these sort of Mandarin phrases, and I'm like, have my headphones out, and I'm yelling into my iPad like, "I'm not gonna even say the Mandarin phrases now." I'm Forget most of. Them, I'm going to butcher it, but like everyone around me was just like, "Who the hell is this guy? Like this crazy person just trying to speak Spanish into his iPad on a super loud 747." Anyway, that was the very short-lived uh, Mandarin course trying to get to China, trying to learn Chinese. But anyway, uh, my picks. So first one, I think you mentioned drinks and entertainment, which I thought was a really interesting topic. Um, I definitely do have a drinks and entertainment pick, and it's basically just the the theme of consolidation and optimization of like food and drinks. So from like a drinks perspective, you know this was like the summer of the claw, right? Like anywhere you go in San Francisco when it's warm out, and you see white claws, any gender, guys and girls, like, and they're delicious, right? It's just water, it's carbonated water, like no. Basically syrup or, or you know very very low sugar and just a little bit of alcohol and it was like the most refreshing thing you could ever drink. And so it's basically like all of the good stuff, none of the bad stuff. But then you you have this evolution of like alcoholic kombucha, and then you know pretty soon I've heard of like alcoholic kombucha plus CBD, and then it's like alcoholic kombucha plus CBD plus vitamin D plus like you know maybe a little bit of caffeine and you know, who knows? Stuff to make you sleep better five hours later. Uh,
1: it's like the the Jamba Juice for uh, white clothes. Yeah, Claws. exactly,
0: exactly. And so yeah, and, and then you know a Jamba Juice and all these smoothie shops, you have like your to the max composed yeah. smoothies and drinks where it's like yeah. a shot of this, a shot of that, a little yeah. touch enhancers. Of this. is what they exactly call it. all these enhancers. Um, and actually, then on sorry, the food it's, side, it's
1: like the jam stack, but yeah, for drinks.
0: Yeah, there's and it's funny. I actually have two picks, but I'm realizing there's like an overarching theme between both of them. And on the food side, you know, you have your meatless burgers or, and sort of all these like optimized soy based products, and it's it. Of course, like there's you know positive repercussions for the environment and all these other things that come out. However, it's also just like this theme of being very opinionated about like the things that we consume and the things that we use, right? It's like, let's trash all the bad stuff and let's keep all the good stuff and let's just like optimize our life in that way. That actually isn't me in my second one, I didn't even think about this when I was writing it down, but on the code side, and it's really having opinionated solutions, and so we think of like the open source movement and we think of, like sort of again, harkening back to what we were talking about earlier about like when REST API first was released, You know, you basically everyone was espousing the, the fact that your world is your oyster now that you have like these APIs, and you almost sound like a used car salesman, where it's like, what's this car do? And they go, anything you want. And it's like, well, that's actually not very helpful, let's actually talk about a solution. Um, it's very solutions oriented, right? And so you have like Gatsby coming out, and they're very opinionated. They go, okay, well, we could have done anything. We could have made a very like unopinionated platform, but we said we're going to hang our hats on React and we're going to hang our hats on GraphQL because we think those are actually just really, really cool technologies, and we think they're going to solve a lot of problems. And I think there's this other rise on technological side where now that we talked about before, like APIs have gestated, like the fact that there's a lot of interoperability and interconnectivity between services and platforms. Now you're starting to see these like end-to-end solutions that people are talking about and people are developing and they're like, this actually is how we think things should be done. You could have done it a hundred different ways. This is the one that we think is gonna serve you the best, or at least it serves us the best. I think that's actually a really interesting sort of evolution in, you know, the digital services and basically digital apps.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm really into like having opinions given to me, especially when I'm trying to ship sites I don't care about so I can use them every year. Mm-hmm. So which is why I chose Gatsby.
0: Yeah, and it's exactly. is a
1: perfect platform to Learn a new thing if you already know React, then learn GraphQL through Gatsby, and if you know GraphQL, learn React through Gatsby. So it's like a nice little platform to approach things, uh, similar to like your white claw thing too, as well. Like if you like white claws, you never had kombucha,
0: why not have both? Yeah, exactly. Just take a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of you know gut biome healthy stuff, a little bit of you know carbonated water, maybe a teen little bit of flavor. Throw it all together. It's all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff.
1: Yeah, uh, well, so they say. Well, some,
0: yeah, maybe a little bit of the bad stuff. <laughs> well,
1: on that note, John, thanks for coming and talking about content attack, enlightening about all these um, composable drink mechanisms, <laughs> and uh, listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio.